0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. There's a beautiful trail that Landon and I have found that we love to hike. In my latest foray into trying to become a little healthier, we found a little trail over off of Waterdown Road. As you, on the halfway up the escarp between Burlington and, and Watertown, called Sleepy Hollow. It's part of the Brew Bruce Trail that runs from Queenston all the way up to Tobermore. I think it was like, eight, I think it was about 800. Smoky Hollow. Thank you. Smoky Hollow. That's, like, that's why I couldn't find it on the internet. I thought Sleepy Hollow. That's a, <laughs> I believe that's a, uh, uh, a story back from uh, the uh, Salem area in the U.S. Smoky Hall is what it's called. It's part of the Bruce Trail system that runs from Queenston about 800 or 900 kilometres I believe from Queenston all the way up to Tobermory and it's a beautiful beautiful trail that we like to hike. Uh, I believe it's about five kilometres we haven't I'm not in shape yet to get all the way through the five kilometres but we're about I think we've done at least half by now. Uh, last weekend we got halfway through before we had to turn around and come back. But It's a beautiful beautiful uh, area that we love it's in the middle of the city um, but it's buried down deep in a ravine, so you don't know you're actually in uh, the city. Uh, some waterfalls, the rushing of the waterfalls all the way through, and the dog loves to come with us. But part of the way through, several times of the way through, I need to stop and catch my breath. <clears throat> because there are certain spots, based on their challenge, and my, where I am in my, in my state of, of, uh, of health, that are a little bit difficult for me at this point. I'm certainly getting better uh, the more we do it, the more, uh, more landing I get out there and, and I get in, in better shape. But there are certain spots that when I'm forced to stop and catch my breath. While well, at first it's a little unnerving to have to stop and wait a few minutes and catch your breath, it's actually a good thing. Because when I'm forced to stop and catch my breath, it allows me to look into the future and see exactly how out of shape I actually am and encourages me to continue getting into shape. The last time we went probably twice as far as we went the previous time. It also causes me to reflect on my journey thus far. I got a little bit further this time than last time where we couldn't get uh, the first time we tried this we didn't get, we didn't get very far. It also allows me to allows us to pause and take in the surroundings, the rushing of the waterfalls, Every now and again, there's a train that goes by at to the top. The rustling of the leaves, listening for another nature, or our dog, or our dog chasing another nature, and the rushing of the waterfalls and the, the river causes us to stop and enjoy the beauty of our surroundings. And of course, an opportunity to hang out and bond with my son. So, being forced to stop and catch my breath while a reality check. Ends up being a very good thing. Allows me to focus on the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. As I reflect on the last nine months that we've been here in our little church family, I'm amazed. I am amazed at the spiritual meat that God has God has been feeding us. Sometimes, as I reflect, and I did this week as I was going through, because all of our messages are posted online, and forget all of them uh, that, that we've heard from Pastor Adrian, from Deacon Jan, from our our visiting pastors that come come through. Forget all that has been thrown at us in the last nine months. And when we stop and reflect and stop and catch my breath, spiritually speaking, I'm overwhelmed at all that has been thrown at us. All that God has thrown at us. And how much further I need to go in my quest to become the child that God wants me to be. This is Meat in due season is both satisfying, as we find it every Sabbath, and overwhelming all at the same time. Much like my reflections from the hikes I go on with land. It's beautiful, but some of the reason I stop and catch my breath is because I simply can't take it and I can't go anymore without pausing for rest. So when I think about all that I've learned, it points me back to one scripture from our Lord and Savior. Which, interestingly enough, I don't know that we've ever covered we might have we might have once in a while. But it is essentially the underlying theme of all that we've been hearing about for the last nine months. So come with me to Matthew chapter six, where Andrew took us during the, the scripture reading. Matthew chapter six. And he read for us the last four verses. But let's go back to verse nineteen and sort of get where the, get where Christ was coming from in context. He was, remember, speaking to a group of Jews who, as we find out over the course of his ministry, were really satisfied with the here and now. And they were looking for a physical king to come and save them from the Romans that were oppressing them. So there was a lot of worry about the here and now. And he starts in verse 19 by saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither mock nor rusty stories, and where thieves do not break in and seal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he continues here talking about worldly wealth versus spiritual wealth. He continues with the lamp of the body is the eye, and if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And again, comparing the spiritual versus the physical, he continues saying, No man, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one above the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other, because we can't serve God and man. Then he continues to talk about the worries of this life, which we all which we all are affected from day to day in this world. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will <coughs> put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not a more valuable thing? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in the hall, all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And we know that Christ was trying to bring them along to realize it wasn't about the physical here and now, but it was about this future life that God has in store for us. Therefore, he continued, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Don't worry about the necessities of everyday life. For after all of these things, the Gentiles seek. Those who are not followers of God. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of your needs, all of these things, the the food, the drink, the clothing, the basic necessities of life, all of these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. There's a lot of things thrown at us while we're on this journey. Changes in direction, changes in terrain, changes in the obstacles. When, when I go on this hike, there's some down parts that are that aren't necessarily as easy as you would think. Down down parts are. It's upgrades that are that are pretty difficult. That you need a walking stick. And it's interesting when you're when you're now that I frequent this place, everyone leaves their walking stick there. There's several walking sticks there that people end up sharing, or you leave it for the next person, which is which was interesting. Slippery parts of the path when the weather changes. We're all all of this affects us in our day to day life. Just the normal distractions of life. And again, as was brought out into, I think in the opening prayer, about the gratefulness of having not just to pause and, and stop. Because I'm I'm sure your jobs and your lives are more like mine probably wouldn't stop until we keel over from stress or, or, or the end, which is when your body basically gives out but Christ here gives us a specific command to help keep our focus and remember who he was speaking to he's this group of Hebrew people who were focused on the outside of the cup that we read about later in the gospels what they looked like to others how comfortable their lives were His command was clear, do what is important to God, and we won't have to worry. So this afternoon, I would like us to pause for a little while, catch our breath, and behold the truths that God has fed us with these last number of months. In doing so, I would like us to refocus on our goal. It is not to have the perfect congregation. It is not to have the largest congregation. It is not to have the most comfortable congregation is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that command lies at the heart of all that He has been teaching us and all that we have been learning. One thing that we have hoped to do was to start a small group fellowship midweek to help interact over the, the course of the sermons and to talk about, as we reflect, after we hear a sermon, it would be good to get together either remotely or, or physically to talk about how this, how the message has affected us and what we've learned uh, as brothers and sisters. And of course, the obstacles of life get in the way and, and we simply haven't had time or, or have not had opportunity to do that. But today, let's sort of take our time to do that and kept, to catch our breaths, our collective breath, for the next few minutes. And as I went over the messages that we've heard over the last mm-hmm. number of months, I noted that it broke down into three basic categories. Doctrine, personal growth and accountability, and church function, which in, in, including worship. So, doctrine, personal growth, and church function. Church function, how we interact. It's interesting that these are interdependent. So as I tried to categorize the, the messages that we heard, they sort of fell into both, one, one, two, or all three slots, because All of God's truths sort of cover a myriad of functions. And they're interdependent. The fact that they're independent of themselves but also dependent on the other categories. All based around seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They support Christ's mandate in Matthew 6 to seek the kingdom and to seek his righteousness. And they in effect summarize the New Testament epistles from Christ and the apostles into those basic categories so that what we're going to do is we're going to look at review some of the lessons that we've learned inside that function of those three categories of doctrine personal growth and church functionality but to start when we're at Matthew 6 verse 33, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness it doesn't say righteousness it says his righteousness because Christ is our perfect sacrifice he is our perfect example it's okay to seek righteousness. The Pharisees were after righteousness because they were after the, the, the being exact with the letter of the law. But they had no clue what his righteousness was. And that's, a, that's a, a key part of that command. It's not just seeking the kingdom and righteousness but seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The righteousness of God and the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ. Because it all supports God's goal from the very beginning if you'd like to turn back to Genesis chapter 1 God said what he was going to do. And for the last several millennia, has simply been about doing that very thing. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 we come back to that time and again. Then God said let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. After his image and after his likeness. And that is Basically, the meaning of life. Many people search for the meaning of life. Monty Python created a whole movie on what the meaning of life was and didn't once bring this into the, into its account. But this is the meaning of life, that God is intentless to make man in his image and after his likeness. So let's start digging in to the first category and see what we've learned about doctrine. And I suppose that all we are taught is doctrine, because doctrine simply means Teaching or instruction, but in the context of, of how we look at doctrine, specifically in, in relation to the other terms, it's, it's truths—what is true versus what is not true. So let's start in Mark chapter seven. Mark chapter seven, as here Christ quotes Isaiah twenty-nine. here true doctrine versus traditions of church leaders. True doctrine versus tradition of church leaders. He starts in, chapter, in verse 5 of Mark chapter 7, where the Pharisees and the Scribes ask him a question. Why do your disciples not wash according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with unwashed hands? They were never accused of not following God's law. They were never accused of not following scripture. They were accused of not following the tradition of the elders. And Christ simply answered and said to them, Well, well did Isaiah prophesy as you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. True doctrine versus tradition of church leaders now tradition is not a bad thing if it falls under God's law it's when tradition usurps God's law or comes outside of God's law that Christ had a problem it wasn't tradition in itself but their very question shows that they were not focused on true doctrine because they said how come they don't follow the tradition of the elders the tradition of the elders shouldn't have anything to do with it if the traditions of the elders fall under God's, God's way of life. This true doctrine, what Christ said here, teaching, in daily worship, teaching His doctrines the commandments of men. True doctrines should form the basis of our teaching. And we won't be able to go into all the doctrines we've learned. We're simply going to kind of catch our breath, stand up at the top of the mountain of God here we're in his, where, where, he, where we worship, so, pass an overview of what we've learned. So let's take a quick look at something. Let's look at the doctrine of Christ. That has been at the, one, the heart of many of our messages. Romans chapter 13. Let's start there. Romans chapter 13. Verse 8 tells us, O no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know he's quoting Jesus Christ from his time here on this earth. he says that love does no harm to a neighbor therefore love is the fulfillment of the law so when we first started we heard about law and grace and we're often taught that in, in other circles that there's law and there's grace but when we read scripture and what we heard is that law and grace are not diametrically opposed they're simply two sides of the very same coin and when understood properly Law and grace meet. Where do they meet? Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to be flipping a little bit quickly here. through some scriptures. Law and grace are not two separate ideas of faith. They belong together. Because law and grace meet. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is where law and grace meet. They aren't two things. They are the same thing. So law and grace meet at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our perfect sacrifice. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. This perfect sacrifice that was sent to teach us what God's way of life really was. Really was meant to be. And he was our perfect sacrifice. This place where law and grace meet. The Jews, Pilate, Herod, Pilate again, and Judas could find no fault in Jesus Christ. None. None whatsoever. Making him... Our perfect sacrifice. And we see that in Matthew twenty seven verse twenty four. When Pilate saw that he could not that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Not I am innocent of this person, I pronounce him just. He is perfect. I have nothing to say here. I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. He's in your hands. And all the people answered and said, his prophetically enough, his blood be on us and on our children. And when he died, he was that perfect sacrifice where law and grace meet, and his blood is on us and our children because of that love that was shown here. And his blood, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, His blood blood that was on us was required to move God's plan into its next phase. Verse 16 of Hebrews 9 tells us, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while a testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And we talked about that earlier this year. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he did blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. According to the law, almost all things were pre with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission one of the lessons we learned for law and grace meet this perfect sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ is his blood was required to be shed so that our sins could be forgiven so that God's plan could move into its next phase which we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I said we'd be catching our breath, but we're helping getting out of breath by moving through some of these scriptures <laughs> verse 20 talking about the same Christ who was crucified who had his blood spilled now Paul tells us Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead for as an Adam all died even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But, and here's the key to this plan of God: each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And he continues on, and we know as we continue, when we take time to go through the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, we see that God says in stages the plan of God is in stages and uh, Pastor Adrian wrote uh, the this month's article where he talks a little bit about the plan of God it came up yesterday from, if, you, if you have read it if you got it yet the monthly newsletter that goes to Burlington and Toronto uh, he wrote that article and talked about how the plan of God is in stages that God isn't trying to save everybody now but that he saves in each one in his own time and that's okay Not everyone is being saved right now, and that is okay. Because eventually everyone will get their opportunity for salvation. And all of this was covered in various messages from various speakers over the last nine months. Because God is the message giver, and his message is consistent. And we can see when we we take a moment and, and review all that we've heard, it's the same theme walking through much of what we've heard. We could go on and talk about this doctrine of Christ for ad, na- ad nauseum is the wrong word, but for, for kind of ad infinitum, I think would be a better term. But let's move on to another doctrine, law and truth. Because once we have this sacrifice of Christ and we've accepted that, it becomes important that law and grace do meet. We have the grace that the shed blood of Christ offers us. Now there are some expectations of God to follow his way of life. And if we're being called now, truth becomes vital to our sustenance. Go with me back to Hosea. Book of Hosea. And the prophets, just following the major prophets in Daniel. Book of Hosea chapter 4. We see what God thinks of truth and his people and their, their adherence to truth. Hosea chapter 4. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Not because they don't have knowledge, but read the next sentence. Because you have rejected knowledge. God doesn't hold us accountable for what we don't know, but when we do know, he holds us very accountable. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I, I will also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. God's law is impartial. It is is truth. It is eternal. It doesn't change. But it is impartial. God's people break it. God's people break it. And and there there will be expectations and consequences for that. As developing kings and priests and queens and royalty, we must know and practice his law at all times. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17. Up in verse 18, where this example was given through Moses to God by God through Moses to Israel, but there are implications and, and benefits for us today. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. And these statutes, why, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. These are the expectations for the kings of Israel. But this is the big, this is the expectation that God has for His people. So that we don't turn away from His law. Because when we turn away from His law, we start treating we start treating others less than they should be treated. Again, law and grace meet together in the plan of God. And there's an expectation that we follow this, and we know God's law, and we don't forget His law. We help our young people, as we do through the various people who commit their time to preparing the, the youth studies. We help our young people develop a respect and a love for God's law in this postmodern world, where everything is turned upside down, backwards, and forwards, and we don't know. We know what's right, but we can't forget what is right because the world has completely forgotten what is right and what is wrong. We see that described for us by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter five. If you'll go there with me, Isaiah chapter five, which foretells of this postmodern nothing is wrong. Everything is relative world. Where God warns his people against becoming this way. Where he says, verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. God's way is not confusing. God is not the author of confusion. But when we adhere to God's law, when we have it written on our hearts when we take it and, and, and appreciate it every day of our lives. We will not be faced, we will not be blown about it when we hear something that sounds contradictory or 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 intriguing. We will be able to know that evil is evil and good is good, and that is always true. We've heard, and we don't have time to go into all of the doctrines we learned, but we heard about three types of sin sin, transgression, and iniquity. help explain God's rationality out of his law why when some people accuse accuse God the God of the Old Testament of being either too tough or not consistent we understand the three types of sin that help to explain and not to understand who God is we heard about hell and death and that there is no that parable was simply a parable and there is no hell or purgatory but when we die we die we are sleeping and we are waiting for the next part of God's plan. Much of the Holy Days were covered. Baptism was covered. All of these various parts of doctrine document over the course of nine months. As I had gone through, it was, it was amazing to me all that we had learned and I was sitting there. The next phase, the next area I'd like to look at is personal growth. So much of what we have learned here, much of what God has given to us accounts for how we can be Better Christians, how we can be better children of God. And it starts in Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Most of the congregations in Paul's day were not mature enough to be ready for strong meat. We note in First Corinthians we noted where Paul wished, and we'll see that a little bit later in relation to something else he wished he could give them strong strong meat, but they were simply still ready for milk, they weren't past the milk, they were still had to learn what agape was here, this Philippian church they were ready to take their their knowledge and their their understanding of Christianity to a new level, with this thing called the mind of Christ, and we see it covered here by Paul, starting in verse 5 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And here in this this small uh, example here, which I believe was, in, in the study, was was mentioned that it was a hymn, I believe. It was a song. That there's a whole lot of doctrine, personal growth, there's a whole lot of everything captured in what this mind of Christ is. And the Philippian church was at the state of maturity that they were ready to take their Christianity to the next level and become like have the mind of Christ in them which now focuses right back to Genesis 126 where God said he would make them in their after his image and after his likeness where we become a little more like Christ and how we treat others and how we see that Jesus Christ is the center of our salvation and it's not, it, it separates from God it's not in competition with the Father but all of that brings glory to the Father. All covered neatly and succinctly in this little passage here by Paul. And we certainly uh, were blessed to take apart this, this book of the Philippians by by pastor reading through the course of sermons and Bible studies. And there was much to learn in that. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. As we put on this mind of Christ, it's incumbent upon us to understand what agape love really is. What agape love really is. Because if God is love, God is the source of this agape. We can't we can't perfectly put on this love of and by ourselves. We need community. And we'll get into that a little bit later as well. But as we start on this, we start on this, this uh, personal growth and becoming better individuals, we see that here in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching and it's this, this dichotomy of trying to become better yourself by serving others they become better and in essence you become better and it's an odd way that God's way works, and from that, from that sermon, as we work on ourselves, we ask, "What can I do to inspire my brothers and sisters to a greater reward?" And when we inspire others to a greater reward, our reward becomes greater. So we don't do it to get a greater reward; we do it because that's that's just who we become. When we follow Christ, we jump into this way of life, and we put on this agape. We do it because that's who we are, who we are becoming. And again, we're surrounded by this doctrine that guides our lives for the purposes for us to become perfect, for us to become perfect not as Christ covers in Matthew chapter 5, become perfect like our Father in Heaven is perfect. And part of that, moving out from agape, is peacemaking. Ephesians chapter 4. Because we are a motley crew of human beings brought together with various pasts, with various afflictions, with various mindsets, with various points of view. And God asks that we come together and be one. That's that's that takes God's that takes God's spirit in us to be to, to come from individuals to become one. We see it as a microcosm in families, and marriages and families, and we see that on a, a greater scale in the church. Ephesians chapter four. And in verse 1 tells us, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we read that, several messages pop into my head that we've heard. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. But this endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace—peace peace, being a peacemaker—having peace takes effort, is it because it encapsulates all the other things we hear about. When we when we want peace, when we bring peace to to a group, agape has to be at the heart of it, because we put ourselves second, we put the needs of others first. we proceed into from peacemaking from agape once we have this agape as the foundation we are ready for gifts and we heard um, several weeks in a row this discussion about gifts let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 1 Corinthians chapter 12 we have this love of God we covered a little bit about that separately with the fruit of the spirit just, the fruit of the Spirit is, is a description of God's love. That God's love is the fruit of the Spirit. And in order for us as, as finding human beings to understand and break it down into all the various aspects of what makes, what makes God who He is, how we can put on a little bit more of agape. And then when we are reaching that point of maturity, like the Philippian church, we're ready for that next step, and that is discovering and utilizing our gifts. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us, There are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit. Not everyone has the same gift, but we all share the Holy Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But again, here's the key, that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So as we come together, this motley crew of individuals with various paths that commit our lives to God, that, that learn doctrine that, that get into the truth and start to change who we are and put on put on God's Holy Spirit accept his accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ learn how to worship him through the holy days and all the various uh, points of doctrine that we learn we develop this this agape that, that should form the basis uh, the foundation of who we are we can then become malleable in God's hands and, and take his gifts as he's given to us, that develop in us, not to make ourselves look great, not to have the spotlight shine on us, but so we can serve each other. So that this motley crew can become a family. Here we see that described here for us. That the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all of us. Because that's what makes a family. And again, as we mature, we're ready to use the gifts God wants us to build. They're a sign of maturity, but are completely for the service of others. And it's so glorifying God, we see that several times in Scripture. Otherwise, we're more in line with what the Corinthian church was like, more than what the Philippian church was like. And when we discovered that, it's simply time to circle back, as Paul did to the church in Corinth in chapter 13. That before we can, where he said, before we can even get into the spiritual maturity discussion about the gifts, if we're not there, we need to circle back and tackle Agape again and that's not a bad thing when we realize it's just a reality that God is all about sticking with people all the way and giving them every opportunity to learn his way to put on his way of life to become agape-filled Christians and when we we have this true agape we are ready to have God's gifts develop in us for the purpose of serving others which now leads into once we once we understand what truth is, commit to this way of life, understand all of the truths that, that God has for us, we develop personally so that we are committed to this way of life, we now become part of a functioning church. When we see that, let's go back to Philippians chapter two, where we were several months ago. Philippians chapter two. When we study this, We're shown something very interesting. And of course, we're not going to do justice to every message today. So there's a whole lot more, as I'm pointing out, these small points, than what just we'll hear today. But before we get to chapter two, let's go back to chapter one and see the introduction, which tells us that Paul wrote this to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. So church leadership was included but the message was to the group as a whole and in light of that in light of the rest of the message when we go to chapter 2 and verse 12 what we saw was therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure and in the study of the book of Philippians what we saw was well this initially when you take out one verse and post it up on the bulletin board looks like it's individualized when we study the entire book it's really a mature group that sees that they're part of this journey together that we work out our own salvation together because if if you make it into the kingdom and I don't not all of us get there and that, that, that that won't be a good thing but it will be great when we walk in together as a, as, a, as, a, as a family has built from the, what I call the motley crew into this, this nicely formed, functioning family that we work out our own salvation together, that we help each other along the way, that getting to God's kingdom, it's as important for me to see you in God's kingdom as it is for me to see me in God's kingdom. And that starts at the basis of this interaction that congregations are families that work together for the good of the whole. John chapter 13 interspersed with this this detailed study on Philippians was our study on the Greek word alalon which was one another and we see that learning how to interact by obeying the various commands of Christ and the apostles and how to treat one another when we study that work one another, refer to a mutual reciprocity so that you can't practice those commands and again bringing in other aspects of, of messages that we heard on Agape. When we heard that we can't, we can't practice our agape by sitting up on this pole for 37 years all by yourself. but it must be practiced in a group setting. That obeying these one these one another commands requires that we do it together. It's impossible it's, it's impossible by definition to obey those commands by ourselves. And here we, we just take one glimpse at one of these one another commands from Jesus Christ himself in verse 34 of John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And there's that love again, there's that understanding of what true agape is, and how it's important that, in light of Philippians 2, and all of some of the other scriptures that we heard on various weeks, all driving together that we do this together, that we figure this out together, that this is, we are a family. And we see that command, thirty different, 32 or three different verbs, different commands, in various points in scripture. All positive, and all of them edifying Acts chapter 2. When we have that as a basis, when we understand that we're in this together, that we are here to lift one other, lift one another up, not put one another down. It's then that our fellowship becomes a family. And we, we we spice in what we see here in the initial church, with this hospitality. We see that in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, after Peter's magnificent sermon, where he covers all that he did, in the history of Israel. And 3,000 souls were baptized, committed themselves that day. With Verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they didn't go off on their own. They came together because they had something in common. And they continued steadfastly, not haphazardly, not half heartedly, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, truth and functionality, and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And to that, this was became a mature congregation like Philippi, where God could add to the church daily those who were being saved. So when we Commit our lives in baptism. When we devote our lives to truth, we realize we need to put on this agape, put on the essence of who God is, and we realize why—that it's not for ourselves, but it's for service to others and using, utilizing the gifts that we have. We come together. We now become a place, as, as uh, Luke here writes in Acts, we become a place that God can send others, that God can share the same truth that he has with us, the same joy that we have in knowing God's way, he can now become a place that can feed others, that God can bring others to us. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being served. We build a church by how we worship together. This, this isn't just fellowship, this was worship. It's, we see here prayer. They sang songs. It was all in how they, they worshiped together. Paul covers, them, Paul covers some of that also later on in some of his other letters, like to Corinth. But we build the church by how we worship together, how we treat one another, how we build the unity of the Spirit, and again, not for the purposes, as we've heard, of building an exclusive club, but to focus on our marching orders to welcome the lost, and we're into a life-saving station. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Some other parts of the church functionality that we learned was that even in dealing with conflict, it is not about making the church a more comfortable place to be by ridding ourselves of those who make conflict, but it is about reconciliation. That our end goal in all conflict resolution should be reconciliation. Of course, it does take two, it does take both sides wanting that, but our goal as the church should be reconciliation. And we see that in 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, we know the history of First Corinthians and what drove that and having to put uh, uh, the, the sinners out. But when that was done, and they, they learned their lesson, they wanted to come back, Paul's lesson was equally for the church at Corinth. Verse 5, but if anyone, chapter 2, verse 5 2 Corinthians 2, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. So again, the purpose was not to have a comfortable congregation, to have a perfect congregation was to reconcile people back to God. And When that reconciliation was there, we now have an obligation to open the flock again and bring them back in. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So again, as, as we become more functional as a family, we learned about conflict resolution and how, how intricate of an example Christ provided for us in Matthew chapter 18. And when put all together, we consider all of these, these different items of church functionality, stuff that we won't cover here today, but we talked talk extensively about the roles of women. We learned that perhaps what we had thought wasn't entirely about the, about what we, what the Bible does say about the role of women in the church. The role of elders, the role of you know, gifts in the congregation, conflict revolution. We take all of that and we, and we match that up on the basis of the other uh, foundation of doctrine and personal growth that we're that we talking about. And we see that we can move from, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As a family, we have this example here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 1, this was one group that Paul wrote to. The same Paul, two different groups. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to karma, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. When well, we take in all that we've learned and see what a, what a common thread that is woven through all that God has taught us. We move from we see this example, and we see the example back in Philippians. That is the example that should be our goal. Philippians chapter four. We saw Paul described this group of people as how we hope and pray we could be described. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. Stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Just back up a few pages to chapter one. Because Paul is full of compliments for this group. I thank my God, verse three of chapter one, upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. That he was begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That would be fabulous. If the Apostle Paul could write that about us. But when we see how doctrine, personal growth, and church functionality all m- melt together to form the family that we have here, this has all been taken from the messages we heard over the course of nine months. I didn't. I didn't use anything new today. This was all based on going back to what's on our website, back to my notes. From five different speakers, over nine different months, fit me frame together because God is a message giver. And we barely, barely scratched the surface. There was stuff I wanted to include that I simply had to cut because time was of the essence. Micah chapter 4 as we conclude. A couple more scriptures as we conclude. Let's go first to Micah chapter 4. Magnificent imagery here points to a time when all people will be offered the same blessings we have. Matthew, Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways we shall walk in His paths, for out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There will come a time when everyone will be offered an opportunity for a safe place to worship, with people of like mind, learning God's ways, and building the family of God one week at a time. David said, however, in the 122nd Psalm, David said, that he was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes grew up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you, may peace be within your walls, and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions I will now say peace be within you because the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. It is a privilege to come into the house of God each week. Let's not take for granted what he he is teaching us. It is not Pastor Adrian, it is not Ethan Jan, it is not me, it is not Pastor Watson, it is not Pastor Ramachan. We are simply the vehicles for his teaching. But it is amazing to behold what God is teaching us. These are not one-off experiences that we come to once a week and then put our our things away, but the things that we need to return to and reflect upon throughout our journey. Smoky Hollow is a quiet place that I have found that's provided a place of solace, a place of reflection, a place of personal improvement, and a time to bond with my son, much like this congregation that we've been blessed with, a place of solace, A place of learning, a place of personal improvement, and a time to bond with family. When I pause to catch my breath once in a while, I stand in awe of the view. I'm amazed at how far God has brought us along, and I'm excited for the places we have yet to go. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at CGIBurlington.org.